God, that by your spirit, through your word, you would transform us as your people, God, personally, in our uh, marriages and families, in our friendships and relationships, and God, corporately, uh, as, as a church, as your people. Uh, God, that this season uh, would point us and draw us closer to you. Um, and God, that even this morning we would uh, encounter you in a new and fresh way, that you would spur us on uh, to faith and good works. God, we thank you and ask this in the name of Jesus for your glory and our joy. Amen. Luke chapter 2, uh, verse 1. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. This is God's word. Friends, the gospel is a seeming paradox that secures our eternal salvation and also patterns how we should live our lives as Christians. This is the good news that we see uh, during Advent. The nativity story is full of polar opposites. We see heavenly angels visiting lowly shepherds. We see Far Eastern wise men coming to visit a poor blue-collar family. We see the Roman Empire and its grandeur and power under Caesar's rule while the true and better king was being born in a manger. The nativity story is full of polar opposites because we have God the creator of everything making himself to become nothing, being born as a child for our salvation. This pattern is seen throughout scripture, seeming paradoxes. We see time and time again that the last will be first, that he who humbles himself will be exalted, that you have to lose your life to find it, that the greatest among you will be the servant, that the meek shall inherit the earth. You see, friends, the gospel is full of seeming paradoxes, and this secures our eternal salvation and patterns how we should live our lives as Christians. But in our brokenness, we fail to believe and fail to act in this good news, but uh, try to do it on our own, right? Like, rather than being last, we want to be first. Rather than being humble, we strive in our pride, and rather than seeking to serve others, we want to be served and serve ourselves. This is the brokenness of human nature because we need a Savior, a Savior who can redeem us and transform us. Today and next week, we're going to be talking about spending less and giving more. Last week, as we uh, have begun the Advent Conspiracy series, turning our Christmas season upside down, we see that uh, to worship fully is, is being prompted by the promised presence of God with us in Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God dwelling with us. And this prompts within us true joy, not circumstantial happiness. This prompts within us a, a posture of worship that is Christward and Godward, not focused on ourselves and the circumstantial and material things around us. And so today and next week when we talk about spending less and giving more, 
we have to ask ourselves, how can we do this? And why should we do this? And friends, I'll assert to you, it's because Jesus is a true and better king. And that we're a part of a true and better kingdom. Right, it's the good news of Advent is that Jesus is a true and better king, and we are part of a true and better kingdom. And because of this, we not only have eternal salvation, but we have a new way of living as God's people here and now. When we look in chapter 2 of Luke, and, and we'll be in here this week and next week, and we'll be hopping back to Matthew chapter 2 a little bit as well, we see what we know is, is the nativity story, the story of Advent, the birth of Jesus Christ. And there's a lot of things in the passage today that I want us to see that, that can hopefully uh, give us uh, even greater hearts of faith and worship toward Christ, but also give us uh, kind of a reassessment of how we should live our lives all the time, but, but especially during this Christmas season. Because first and foremost, we see that the good news of Advent is that Jesus is a true and better king. Look at this in chapter 2. Verse 1 says this, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. All right, that first verse is, is packed with information. This is not just a historical record of, of something that really happened, like, okay, there's Caesar, and there's a, there's a census that has to be taken, and that's going to be registered, right? We, we can glance at that, and, and that often just takes us to a historical framework to know what's going on, like what time period Jesus was born. And that's part of why that was written. But there's more going on in the story there. For a first century reader of the original audience of, of the first church or those who were, were around during the time of Jesus, that sentence would pack a huge punch, not only historically, but, but theologically. You see, what's going on here is the Roman Empire was a vast empire that had taken over much of the known world. You see, the Roman Empire was, was uh, categorized or, or characterized by, by strength and power. They were conquering smaller lands and smaller peoples and bringing them into subjugation. Some of it was done by uh, immense force and uh, brutality. And during the time of the Roman Empire, it's said that, the, that an average um, person living in, uh, in, in Judea would be taxed maybe 70 to 80 percent of their income by the Roman Empire. And then on top of that, they would have to pay a temple tax and stuff. So it's said that maybe 80 to 90 percent of your income in that day would be taxed. So imagine being a fisherman and you work hard all weekend catching fish. And let's say you catch 100 fish. 70 to 80 of those would go to Caesar. Maybe 10 or 20 of those would go to the local taxes and the temple tax of your religion, leaving you with 10 fish to feed your family and to maybe sell at the market to have a little income. Tough times for a first century person under the rule of Rome. It says here that all of the world should be registered. And that phrase, all the world, is meaning that uh, this is an assertion that Caesar Augustus, had, Caesar Augustus had a sovereign reign over the known world at that time. All of the world. Caesar Augustus' power was so great that he was reaching to the far ends of the known world, taxing and registering people, taking a census so he could know who were his subjects. We see that a few decades before Julius Caesar had deified himself, saying that he was a god. His adopted son, Augustus, therefore, was considered a son of God. It was known in the Roman world that you had to worship the emperor as a god. 
Caesar promoted himself constantly as the world's savior. Rome was brutal in its implementation of its empire. But often Caesar would say, I'm the savior of the world, and he would proclaim peace. He would proclaim security. He would proclaim power and freedom. But this was not the case. And in the midst of this, Jesus is born. The Gospel writers Matthew and Luke mark for us what's really going on in human history. That in the midst of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, Rome marked by power and security and freedom and peace, and that Caesar being a savior, we see that a true savior is born. You see, in Luke's Gospel, in chapter 1, Verse 32, the angel meets with Mary, says, you have a son, you will call his name Jesus, which means the Lord saves. Verse 32, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. We see later in chapter 2 when the angels come to visit the shepherds, they say, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So we see in the first century the Roman Empire marked by power and security. Caesar being the Savior of the world. The first verse of chapter 2 tells us otherwise. That Caesar is not the savior of the world, but Jesus is. That Rome does not offer security and power, but Jesus does. You see, for you and I today, it's hard for us, it's easy for us just to gloss over that first verse and say, yeah, Caesar Augustus, I've seen Gladiator, whatever. For you and I today, we don't realize that the same subjugation that was experienced by a first century Jewish fisherman is what we experience today. It just looks a little different. We do not find ourselves enslaved by Roman rule, but often we find ourselves captured by other cultural idols, like materialism, maybe selfish ambition. You know, if you were to assess your checkbook, how much of your income goes to things out of necessity? I'd be willing to bet that many of us in this room are struggling with finances during this economy. We look and we say, well, hey, maybe 60 to 70% or 80 to 90% of our income goes to things that are beyond our control. Very similar to the first century. Now, before I lose you, this is not going to be a money talk. This is not going to be a health, wealth, gospel talk. This is not going to be a guilty, give more to the church talk. What I want us to do is I want us to see how the good news of Advent, the birth of Jesus in the midst of, uh, of the Roman Empire, in the midst of Caesar Augustus claiming to be the Savior, in the midst of the Roman Empire claiming to be sovereign, we see that Jesus Christ is born, the true and better King, the true Savior of the world. His kingdom is the true eternal kingdom in which we find security, our identity, true freedom, true peace. For you and I, today we see that the Christmas season is a time marked by great giving, but it's also a time marked by great spending. We often find ourselves buying stuff we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't even like. 
often equate the value of a gift by how much we spend rather than maybe the true intrinsic value of the act of giving. And so the problem is not money. The problem is not material things. The problem is an issue of the human heart. Right? Often, the most, I think the most misquoted verse of the Bible, often people say, money is the root of all evil. That's not in the Bible. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So, as we move forward with this message today, I want you to hear something. As the material things are not bad. Money is not bad. But the human heart that is so easily deceived and makes idols out of good things is where the issue lies. And so as we assess what it means for Jesus to be the true and better king, this is an eternal thing for us when we say Jesus is the true savior of the world. So we know that, that after we die, we are part of an eternal kingdom with him. That is true. That is good news. But that good news also has implications for us here and now. Knowing that if Jesus is the true and better king, our bank account is not. That our status in society is not. That how much we have coming in or how much we spend giving out is not where we find our identity. Is not where we find our security. It's not where we find freedom or peace. In fact, friends, I'll just be remotely transparent with you. And this this holiday season thus far has been probably the least peaceful holiday season I've ever experienced. There's been intense conflict in so many lives of, of our family and friends, and it's been a very challenging Christmas season. So we say, well, if, if this is the time of peace and joy, we take a step back and say, well, if we're not experiencing peace, we're not experiencing joy, could it be that we are finding our security and identity, our salvation, so to speak, in something else other than Jesus? I think so. If you are looking to money or material things to be your security and identity when those things are taken away from you. Maybe you have a huge tax hit that happens or your plumbing explodes or there's health issues that happen or you get a pay cut at work or you lose your job. You can say, what's going on? I'm losing my security. I'm losing my identity. But friends, Jesus is a true and better king because he is a true and better savior. There's a great movie and book called Fight Club, who the author, I'm not sure if he's a believer, I don't, I don't think so, but in chapter 5 of the book, he says this, he says, you buy furniture, and you tell yourself, this is the last sofa I will ever need in my life. Buy the sofa, then for a couple of years you're satisfied that no matter what goes wrong, at least you've got your sofa issue handled. Then the right set of dishes, then the perfect bed, the drapes, the rug. Then you're trapped in your lovely nest, and the things you used to own, now they own you. Fantastic movie. Great book. And we see that the issue, even from a secular author's standpoint, is not that material things are bad. But when our focus and motivation can be on those things, we find our security and identity and then we find out that we're not free, but we end up being trapped in our lovely nest, owned by the things that we thought we own. Again, I say to you, material things are not bad, but the human heart is so easily deceived. But we see in Advent, the birth of our Savior Jesus changes everything. 
We see that if Jesus is indeed a true and better king, we do not find our identity and security in Caesar, who is an emperor. We do not find our identity and security in Rome that has this vast empire. We do not find our identity and security by the benefits of... The, I mean, one of the things that Caesar used to do is he would go around, not personally, but his, his employees and soldiers and emissaries would go to different towns with wagons full of bread. And they would show up and hand out bread and say, trust Caesar to provide bread for you. Which gives a whole new meaning when Jesus sets foot on the scene and says, I am the bread of life. Right? Caesar would send out people to give out all kinds of good news of, of trust Rome to be your peace. Trust Rome to be your security. Trust Caesar to be your savior. Today you and I do not hear the voice of Caesar, but we hear the voice of American consumerism, perhaps. Where buy this piece of technology, you'll feel better about yourself. Get these clothes. Get this designer thing going. Have this in your bank. Have this status. Have this neighborhood. Have this job. Those things aren't necessarily bad. But if we find our ultimate identity and security in them, we do not find joy. We do not find peace. So, friends, if Advent changes everything, if Jesus is a true and better Savior, if Jesus is the true and better King, we have a different perspective because we know that our true peace is found in Him. Our true security is found in Him. Our true identity is found in being kingdom citizens because our King was born in a manger. So friends, where do you find your peace? Where do you find your security? Where do you find your power and your freedom? The good news of Advent is that Jesus is the true and better King who gives us true peace, true security, true freedom, true joy. So if Jesus is the true and better King, this means for us that secondly, the good news of Advent is that we are part of a true and better kingdom. Right? This changes everything for us. If, if, if Caesar is not the Savior that Jesus is, if Rome is not the eternal kingdom but Christ's kingdom is, that, that means we are free from the things that you and I struggle with today uh, because the material world is not the box in which we find ourselves trapped in. Right? If, if the sofa, the drapes, and the dishes are not what dictate to us what kind of nest we will be trapped in, but rather the freedom we have in Christ, this changes everything how we live you and I today. Right? Like, we see here... Then in chapter 2 it says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Alright, so this is not just a chronological thing, but it's a, a theological statement that despite the rules of the world, Christ is sovereign. Despite all the known world of Rome, that, that God's uh, domain is broader than that. But look at verse 3. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee to the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Now, I love that line because if you read it in the context of, okay, Rome is not sovereign. Caesar is not Savior, but Jesus is. Rome is not sovereign, but, but Christ's kingdom is sovereign. But when you read these next couple of verses, it's pretty cool to say, like, as Joseph was traveling, everywhere he went was part of Christ's domain. <laughs> I just think it's so cool like, to think that like, his wife Mary is pregnant, riding on a donkey, and everywhere they go, the baby within her womb is saying, this is mine, that's mine, that's mine. And, and do you see that? Like, as they go, it's like, all went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph went from Galilee. Jesus is like, that's mine. Uh, he went from the town of Nazareth, that's mine, uh, to Judea, mine, Bethlehem, mine. 
I mean, it's, it's really cool when you put it in that context that everywhere Joseph and Mary went, even before Jesus was born, was a place that God and his sovereignty had his kingdom already going. I think it's cool. Maybe, maybe you do too. Bethlehem, in verse 4. The city of David. David was the greatest king that Israel had known. Hundreds of years before the time of Christ, David was a king. And you may know from reading uh, the Old Testament, First and Second Samuel, and reading some of the Psalms of, uh, of what was going on in the life of David. Not a perfect king, but known as a man after God's own heart. And after David's rule was over, through the prophets, God promised that another king would come to rule. Another king would come to reign God's people as a shepherd. That another king would come from the line of David to rule God's people. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 2, the, the, uh, Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus, we see that a king Herod, who is a king, uh, a local king in the land under Caesar's rule, uh, hears the news of the birth of Jesus and calls together scribes and priests to say, what's going on here? And these scribes and priests quote the prophet Micah. In verse 5 of Matthew chapter 2, they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. So I love this, that hundreds of years before the time of Christ, that God promised that a true king would come, a king that's not Caesar, a king that is not the Roman king, but a king that is God's king to rule over my people, God says. He foretold this to the prophet Micah. Uh, Matthew recounts this in chapter 2, and we see that Bethlehem was a city of great significance biblically, and so for Mary and Joseph to go to Bethlehem because uh, he was of the line of, of David is God fulfilling his promise that a true Savior would come, a true and better king would come to rule God's people so that they would be part of a true and better kingdom. Not Rome, not America, not uh, our own idealized personal realms. But God says, a Savior will come to shepherd my people. So friends, as, as we assess what it means to be uh, during Advent season, part of an Advent conspiracy, when we see, you know, what does it mean to, to spend less and give more by worshiping God fully? We see that we have to have a Godward, Christward orientation, that Jesus is a true and better king, that Jesus is a true Savior, not Caesar, not your job, not your status, not the money you have in your bank, not the house you live in, not the relationships you have with other people. Those things are good. And if God has given you a good job, praise him for it. If he has given you money in the bank, thank him for it. If he's given you a great house and a great neighborhood, praise God. But praise God, not the house, not the money, not the relationship. Jesus is a true and better Savior because you are part of a true and better kingdom. Therefore, the things we have are no longer material things that we acquire for identity and security, but rather they are things given to us to steward for God's glory and for the furtherance of his kingdom. So God says here, hundreds of years before, a shepherd will come to rule my people. A ruler will come who will shepherd my people, Israel. That's why we see great significance in the birth of Christ in Bethlehem. That we have a new identity being part, grafted into uh, the family of God. 
There's a British pastor, Charles Spurgeon, who said, Jesus Christ came to seek and save sinners. Electing love has selected some of the worst to be made the best. Pebbles from the brook are turned by grace into jewels for the royal crown. Worthless dross he transforms into pure gold. Redeeming love has set apart many of the worst of mankind to be the reward of the Savior's passion. See, I love this. Jesus is a king, therefore our identity and security is found in him. And we are part of a kingdom, therefore our motivations are now one of stewardship, not ownership. If everywhere Jesus walked, he said, this is mine. Like, they're riding on the donkey, right? He's not even born yet, and everywhere they're going is, hey, uh, Galilee is mine, Nazareth is mine, Judea is mine, Bethlehem is mine. And then Jesus busts out the room and says, every part of this planet is mine. Does not his sovereignty apply to your checkbook? Does not his sovereignty apply to your furniture, to your home, to your car, to your motorcycle, to your skateboard, to your rollerblades? Huh? No one else has rollerblades? Couple skate only. Nobody else? Awesome. And so this reframes, <laughs> this reframes how we look at Christmas, does it not? So what it means to be part of an Advent conspiracy, worshiping Jesus fully because he is our true source of joy, and then spending less and giving more because we see that our identity and security is not in our stuff, but in the Savior Jesus who rescues us. And that our kingdom is not one that is material because of what city, state, or country we live in, or neighborhood, or material things that surround us, but rather our kingdom is, is because Jesus has rescued us and drawn us in to his eternal kingdom. So here and now, it's not about what we get. Honestly, it's not about what we give. It's about how we steward what we have. It's about how do we use what God has given us to point others to Christ and to experience ultimate joy together with other believers and get the good news of Jesus out to those who don't yet know him. Now this could change everything for us if we take a step back and say, how does this, how does this apply to Christmas? You're probably thinking, all right, what is this spend less Christmas? When are you going to get to that? Um, here's a couple of things I was just journaling this week. As I was thinking, uh, what, what does this mean? Jesus is a true and better king, not Caesar, not Queensborough National Bank and Trust, my bank of choice. Not, you know, the money you have in your bank or the material things you have, that's not your savior, but Jesus is your savior. And that your kingdom is not uh, geographical or temporal, but rather is an eternal kingdom. What does it mean? How can we apply this to an attitude of the human heart, right? Because things are not bad, but the human heart can be corrupted and deceived. So it's not bad to have money, but the human heart can fall in love with money rather than the one who provided the money to you. And God, uh, the human heart can, can fall victim to idolizing relationships rather than thanking God for the relationship you have or so on and so forth. So what does it mean as we talk about uh, this week spending less and next week we're talking about giving more? So it's so a part two in mini series within a series in a series, like an inception type situation. So what does it mean to kick and drop application of this? Here's what I was thinking about this week. First, I would challenge you to do this, friends. As we, as we celebrate the birth of Christ in Advent, as we worship together, as we reflect, as we read Scripture, and then in the midst of this, say, we need to ha have parties. We need to host our family. We, we need to, you know, buy a tree. 
and we need to get gifts for people. I mean, as, as we sit back and think, uh, what does this mean? I want to just challenge you to do a couple things. This will change your Christmas, your Advent season. First, um, slow down. Just slow down. And assess uh, who Christ is and what he's done for you. I mean, just take a step back and just think about your story of salvation. And if Jesus is a true and better king, think about what Christ has done for you. I'll be 35 next week, and I became a Christian when I was 8 years old. <laughs> and my wife and I were talking yesterday just about what has God done in the past like couple decades in my life. I attended a wedding yesterday of a, of a friend of mine whose life is so different now than 10 years ago when I first met him. And just to reflect what, what God can do in a couple of years. So, so as you enter this Advent season and we celebrate the birth of our Savior, if you're a Christian, just, just slow down, pause, and just reflect on what Christ has done to you and for you. Secondly, when it comes to what we do for, for Christmas, I love buying gifts. I love giving gifts. I love buying stuff. I love spending money. You know, I'm just like, you know, anytime I go anywhere with my kids and I love buying donuts and just whatever else, I just love to, to do that. But this holiday season, before you buy gifts and just start spending money, just pause, slow down, and then assess how your spending is an investment in the gospel. And what I mean by that is this. This is what, what we've tried to do. And this may sound kind of weird because it's really easy, especially with kids, just to say they want that doll, they want that toy, let's just check, 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 and just get it. But we're trying to pause this season and think, how will this, is this really just spending or is this an investment? Right, like, because sometimes we equate just spending money to investing, but those are two different things. Sometimes you can invest without spending much. Other times you can spend a lot and it's not really an investment. So, so my wife and I are trying to slow down and say, how is this gift? And you may think, man, you guys are just overthinking it. I don't think so. Just give this a try this year. Next year we'll do your thing, all right? Um, we're trying to, to slow down and say, like, Jesus, what have you done in our life this year in the past decade? And, and praising God and thanking him for, for all that he's doing and has done in our lives. And then, and then secondly, we're saying, okay, how is this gift, is this gift going to be just a random spending? Or is this an investment? in somebody or something? Is this, is this spent, by spending this money, I mean, this money belongs to, to God anyway. Like, my paycheck belongs to God. Um, and so I say, okay, how will this money honor Jesus? How will this money bring someone else great joy and point them to Jesus? And, and how will this get the good news of Jesus out there? And if it doesn't do that, we may not spend that money. Does that make sense? Those of you with kids probably are experiencing this as well because, like, our oldest is five. And so now, I mean, she's very much aware of what's going on at Christmas. It's no longer, uh, you know, when they were little, they were kind of like, we, what is this? You know, they're just tearing at anything and they kind of don't get it. But, you know, she's old enough now to know what's going on. So we're trying to shepherd our daughter into knowing what, what Advent is, is for. And friends, it's not just kids, but it's adults, too, that, man, random aside, is that so much is trying to steal your attention away from Christ. And so much is trying to steal your joy because you're thinking, I really want that iPad mini, but you may not get it this year. I say, oh, I'm disappointed in get an iPad mini. I'm rocking the first gen up here. Thankfully, it's, uh, it's the generosity of somebody having the first gen, and it's working just fine. Um, I'm really sorry. I'm really sleep deprived because my friend who got married, I love him. 
he exhausted me. I just got to leave that. <laughs> so that wedding, I'm so, I'm so distracted. My apologies, folks. So slow down. Assess who Christ is and what he's done in your life. Secondly, slow down and assess, uh, will spend, is this spending an active investment or is it just crazy spending? Will this, uh, is this a spending prompted by joy and an expression of gratitude? Will this spending honor the Lord and further the good news of Jesus? Because if you can do that, man, you should do it. God has given you the means to spend in order that those things would happen. But for the vast majority of us, I think we can spend less and in so doing, do a better job of pointing people to Jesus. Does that make sense? Like if spending $100 distracts people from Jesus, don't do it. But if spending 20 bucks points people to Jesus, do it. Right? If spending $10,000 points people to, do it, to Jesus, do it. But if spending less points people to Jesus, better do that. Does that make sense? That's what I'm trying to get at here. So what my wife and I have committed to do this season is, is we're just trying to slow down and we're trying to pray for discernment. And, and with every little expenditure whether it's within our means or not, just to say, wait, before we do this, will this honor Jesus? Or should we not do this? Could we spend less and in so doing point people to Jesus more? And if so, let's do that. Um, so we're trying to think of creative ways to just pause. Um, and so a couple of the things you do is pray a lot for wisdom and discernment. If you're married, talk things over with your spouse. Read the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, which is chock full of biblical wisdom when it comes to stewardship. Does that make sense? So all this to say, I'll wrap it up in a nice tidy package with a bow, is that Luke chapter 2, where we'll be next week as well, the nativity story begins in verse 1 of chapter 2 with the fact, the truth, uh, that Jesus is the sovereign, true and better king and true and better savior. And that his kingdom is broader than any geographical or monetary or material kingdom that exists. And in so doing, that shapes who we are. We find our identity and security in that. And therefore, uh, not only do we have an eternal destination we're going to, but here and now, our lives should look different. Does that make sense? That's what I was trying to get to today. So uh, read that and pray over that. Um, because the gospel is a paradox. Uh, that secures our eternal salvation and shapes how we are to live here and now. Um, I'm going to close with this prayer, and then we'll have a time of response. And this is a prayer from, uh, it's a Puritan prayer um, from a book called The Valley of Vision. Somebody just pray this over us. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart. That the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit. That the repenting soul is the victorious soul. That to have nothing is to possess everything. That to bear the cross is to wear the crown. That to give is to receive. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty. Thy glory in my valley, thy life in my death. Amen. So as we come to the time where we're going to